0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the AltMed podcast. Here, as always, my co-host Mitch Kurtz, and it's our pleasure to have on the show today Dr. Joe Kosterich. Joe, welcome. Uh, Mitch,
1: Andrew, great to be with you. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) We've got a lot to cover today, I feel, because you've... (laughs) Been involved, uh, you know, with one of the biggest uh, medicinal cannabis companies in Australia over in WA, in Little Green Farmer, and I think we'll get to that. But before we do, I maybe just if you could take us through your background and and how you kind of came to be involved in in medicinal cannabis.
2: Yeah, look, it's an interesting um, and, and good question, and as is often the case in life, it's you know, I suppose who you know and and who you've dealt with and different aspects of of the industry that you've been involved with. So Flita Solomon, who's the CEO of Little Green Farmer, rang me up in early 2017. She and I had worked together with some other people uh, Paul Long who's also involved in little green Farmers, chief operating officer. Uh, we'd worked in a business in the mid-2000s um, which is called on-site health solutions and that was delivering uh, well-being and health programs mainly or to industry but mainly on, on mine sites in WA which you know were booming then and uh, booming again um and that was in the mid 2000s uh, ultimately the business got sold people went their different ways and, and rang me out pretty much and we've been in touch periodically out of the blue and said look i've been asked to look at this opportunity in medicinal cannabis and was really i suppose initially seeking my take as to whether um, for want of a better term you know this is, is this kosher is this something you know is is this something worthwhile it's the laws have just been changed You know, can i suss it out from a medical perspective and and uh, you know give my view and Look, I did and came back and said, look, this is, you know, it's obviously new here. It's been going uh, in other countries for longer. It's not, you know, a panacea for every element that everybody's got, but it certainly has validity and can be of, of benefit. And one thing led to the next, and as the company formed, um, I was asked to become on board as medical advisor. And you know, as part of nearly four years later, um, yeah, I'm still here.
1: Amazing. So had you been prescribing medicinal cannabis before you came on board with the,
2: with... well, ultimately, I mean, the laws changed in, in 2017, I think, you know, really right through 2018, there weren't that many prescriptions issued. So ultimately I've had an involvement in the business before I was in the, in the position to be able to prescribe. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, Vicky Kotsrilis, I think was the first general practitioner to prescribe in Australia, because in those days it had to be approved by a specialist and the application process was enormously complex. Um, and then gradually as different jurisdictions, uh, sort of, what's the word, made it a little bit less onerous for, for doctors and, and prescribed in particular enabling GPs to prescribe. Western Australia um, was the second last and moved down that path at the end of 2019. I'd had a few patients on it before then but that required me up until then to get supporting letters from specialists, some of whom, you know, were agreeable and others, it was really quite difficult. Um, post, 20, uh, post November 2019, when the laws here were changed to enable GPs to prescribe without the input of specialists, I think I've put in about 260 plus, um, you know, applications through SASB, uh, you know, to treat people yeah, through, wow. uh, with medicinal cannabis.
0: And what's the um what's the response been like? I mean, I just in sort of a general, you know, your clinical observations from your experience. Um, uh, you know, we hear it, obviously it can work for some people, it doesn't work for others. Um, perhaps are you able to very you know broadly and non specifically share your experiences? Mm.
2: There's no medication of any description that works equally well for everybody. If there was one medication that lowered everybody's blood pressure and didn't cause side effects, we wouldn't have 50 or 80 or such (laughs) on the the market. Same with antidepressants, same with diabetes medications, same with asthma sprays. So medicinal cannabis certainly does, does help people. And in particular, I suppose with sleep, chronic pain, anxiety, I won't go through the entire list, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it. In terms of response rates, Look, the, 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 the numbers that are tossed around and, and I'd say my findings you know, would be broadly consistent with it is you know, something in the order of three quarters or so people will get a reasonable response. Some people get a very good response. There, there are those who get dramatic improvement, whether it's in their pain, uh, their anxiety levels, their, their tremor. Um, some people, unfortunately, get no response. And, you know, that, that's with all medications. And everybody else is somewhere in the middle. Um, so look, if you had to say what happens with most people, I'd say the majority will get improvement. Now, if you then say to what extent that is is necessarily, you know, that is necessarily variable, mm.
1: and in your experience, um, how much of that variable nature of the the response is due to the to the product, or due to uh, just the individual? Do do, do you have experience? Um, I'm assuming you have experience with a lot of different kinds of products. that say could be. Um, different sources of products it could be different types of products for example cbd versus thc and making sure they're on the you know the the one that fits that particular indication Mm. uh
2: well this this also becomes complicated because at times if we're we're making decisions say chronic pain probably the best one if you're making decisions on treatment and it was purely purely on clinical grounds in most instances you probably go for formulation which is equal parts thc and cbd now there are people who for a variety of reasons are not necessarily in a position to do that they may be subject to workplace testing they may need to drive quite off uh, quite a bit they may um, you know have up, have up, have concerns about thc so one may end up using a different um, formulation um Look, I've had people who you know, have been on, on equal, so again, use pain as the example because it's probably the most frequent application. Sure. You know, people have been on equal parts who then went to CBD dominant. Other people have gone the other way. Look, I think it is about finding the right formula, but I suspect that generally when there isn't a response, my estimate would be in most instances, it's going to be for some people, it's just not really helpful for them. And yes, it's worth adjusting dose and, and, and adjusting formulation. But as with all, this is with all medications, um, there are mm. some people where for whatever reason, they're just not responders and that's not anybody's fault. I mean, there's no way of knowing or testing that in advance. I mean, there's a little bit of a of side now. There are some tests that can be done, uh, genetic tests, to try and predict response to certain medications, particularly mm. um, some of the antidepressants and um, uh, some other psychiatric medications. Now, we haven't got that for cannabis. We know everybody has an endocannabinoid system, but that also doesn't mean that everybody will, um, will respond in the same way. And part of the reason for that is that what might be driving their symptoms might be other than issues in the endocannabinoid system. Mm
1: interesting and I, I did pick up on one thing uh, you said before about uh, maybe a reduction in tremors for example i'm very interested in exploring a bit more of that area because that's something we have been meaning to look at on this uh, podcast series but we haven't gotten into that area um, you know the the kind of neurological maybe parkinson's uh, realm i'd love to hear your thoughts on on that particular indication ms uh some of the muscle spasticity that that region is, is something we'd love to, to extrapolate a bit on and, and get the benefit of yeah. your experience.
2: Look, uh, Parkinson's disease is, is again, one of, one of these conditions where there's no particularly, uh, particularly known cause. And generally speaking, people, Become resistant to the medications that they're on. There are two main ones that are used, levodopa and carbidopa. There are a couple of others, and all the specialists will always, like any doctor will say, you sort of hold off with starting these medications because eventually people are going to come, need higher doses, and then become resistant to them. And they can also cause uh, some nasty side effects also on the the muscles. So, medicinal cannabis, um, particularly in an older age group, I've had a, a number now, generally. Beyond the age of seventy-five, and, and often Parkinson's does affect a, an older age group. We're at surprisingly lowish doses, and typically um, in that age group, you often can use the uh, the ten ten, which seems to be best for um, for Parkinson's. There are people who argue use THC dominant. There are people who argue you know use CBD dominant. Again, you know we don't have an absolute answer to this, but the balanced formulations do seem to improve um, neuromuscular function. And this is almost certainly through, um, you know, through workings in the, in the endocannabinoid, they, whoops, endocannabinoid system, um, and on some of the, you know, the receptors. So by variably improving that that functionality, we do find these people have less tremor. They also have less rigidity, and we see that in some forms. And, and, and you touched on that Andrew of spasticity, and there are a number of different. Um, neuromuscular conditions that can cause spasticity some of them are quite rare they don't get a lot of of airplay I will confess that since I've started in this field um, you know I'm seeing people from from right around the the metro area and people are coming in with conditions that quite frankly I've not seen before and um, won't pretend to any particular familiarity with them by the time these people are coming in often with spasticity issues yeah they've, quite rightly they've, they've seen doctors they've been to to neurologists and are often told Look, there really isn't much that can be done which again is nobody's fault it's just the nature that these conditions don't have any specific um, uh, cure and often no underlying sort of cause Some of them with spasticity have responded very well to cannabis, and in multiple sclerosis, uh, we see some people do remarkably well with uh, Mm -hmm. medicinal cannabis. Also, usually in equal parts of of THC and CBD. One never should be dogmatic um, with this, Um, and you know some people not as much. MS, by its nature, will wax and wane, so almost no matter what treatments people are on. They'll have periods where they're better and periods where they're, where they're worse. Some of the newer, what they call biologic meca- medicines are, are having a positive impact in MS compared to say 15, 20 years ago. But for symptom relief, you know, often they do quite well and pain also um, in MS, um, often, uh, you know, often people do quite well. But Parkinson's in the older age group, interestingly, um, in my observation, and it's not massive numbers, so people will say, oh, you know, haven't got huge numbers, true. Um, but they tend to do quite well and their quality of life is improved significantly if they've got less muscle tension, spasticity and uh, less tremor because just simple, basic things like trying to pick up a coffee, cup of coffee. If your muscles are stiff and twitching a bit, it makes your life quite hard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting. I was just listening to you then. And were you saying that there's um, potentially people that come to you from more traditional therapies, uh, people that have been seeing the neurologist haven't found relief in what they're doing and then would come to a you know cannabis specialist, if, if you will, and, and then actually find that relief that they've been searching for? Is that something that you would say is a common occurrence or? or?
2: Um, look, I, I'd say that, like the way medicinal cannabis at this stage is configured in this country is that it can only be used when other treatments have failed or caused unacceptable side effects. Yeah. So almost by definition, everybody who's coming along to inquire about medicinal cannabis mm. has been and, and actually needs to have been. Like you, you can't get an application approved if it's, oh, this person's got symptoms. Have they taken anything? No. Well, that will get knocked back. Mm. They don't have to, as as you know, they don't have to have taken, you know truckloads of, of different treatments but yes they do need to have tried and failed conventional treatments and and you know that's look i think to a degree that has some some merit but i think where we need to get to with medicinal cannabis and hopefully we will do it over the next um, you know three to five years or so is that it is also seen and as as a legitimate treatment so therefore why you know, should you have, have to have tried something else first? Now, look, we're not there yet, and I don't think it's about to change um, next week. And, for, you know, in a lot of instances, people may prefer to try other medications first, because if they're PBS subsidized and they work for them, then that's obviously going to be a cheaper option. So it's sure. in no way wrong. Um, to try um, longer established treatments first. But there'll be people who say, well, you know, cannabis has been established for four or 5,000 years, so it's not exactly <laughs> new. Um, you know, it's, yeah. we're treating this as this new substance. But, you know, in some respects, you could say that um, it's actually older than most of what we'd call established treatments.
1: Yeah, and some people uh, just think they've been having it for four or 5,000 years. It's just been a night on the couch. But, um, <laughs> but um, just curiously, now on that, I, I, when it... I'm sure that I've heard doctors say that patients do come to them sometimes having said, I have tried medicinal cannabis outside of the legal framework, if you will, or, you know, CBD, I bought it online or my friend, I I used to smoke joints. Yeah. 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 That kind of thing. What's your view? Does, Does that change your view as a prescriber when somebody comes with that kind of anecdotal base, or is it something that you maybe disregard as not really,
2: you know, relevant? Um, Look, it's not a, I suppose in my opinion, it's not an an issue. I don't see that as as a reason why people can't or shouldn't proceed with with, with medicinal cannabis. If they've had a reasonable response, if they've come in and said, look, I have used something illicitly and it improved my symptoms, that arguably is encouraging. Now, the one catch in all of this is that when you buy something online or um, from your mate down the street, you don't necessarily know what you're getting <clears throat> of course, both from the point of view of, you know, it might, might say nothing on it, but even if the label does say X milligrams of THC and Y milligrams of CBD, it may have nothing of the sort in it. And mm. you don't know what else it has. In it. in fact, there was a study done by the university of Sydney where they asked people to submit uh, products that they were using. And uh, I don't think one correlated with what was supposed to be in it. Um, mm. That said, if people have had some sort of response and it's positive, I think that is a, a very soft, a very soft indicator that they may respond to medicinal cannabis. But I don't see, it, I don't personally see that it it's a reason not to use it. Arguably, it's a reason to use it because if it is helping and there is some legitimacy to what they're doing in terms of its effectiveness, then much, much better to have a known product with known quantities. And that you know it doesn't have Absolutely. impurities in it, and that the next bottle you get, and the one after that, and the one after that, is going to have the same, um, you know,
0: components. Well, yeah. I, just on that point, the, I suppose, correct me if I'm wrong, but that factors into if, if you were, say, for example, applying on a patient's behalf for their access to medicinal cannabis products on the uh, special access scheme, that. The, the fact that they might have had a black market um, quote unquote product uh, that doesn't at all have any real material use in the clinical justification from the doctor's perspective, if it's not a tested product that where we know the quantities of cannabinoids and and so on.
2: Yeah. So people will do all sorts of, I suppose, all sorts of things <clears throat> The issue in terms of, of prescribing. And this is a, bit more at a um, different state health levels than at a federal level with the TGA is if there and and in New South Wales, well, if you are a registered drug addict, or you have Mm -hmm. a known history of drug misuse now that's quite different. That is that is very, very different to uh, you know, somebody might have used some, you know, some herbal medication, which they think has got CBD in it, or maybe somebody's let them use something which look, you know, if you want to be a purist, they shouldn't have done. And I'm absolutely not advocating that people do this, but that doesn't, that's not the same as being having a history of, of substance misuse or being a registered addict. So in those two situations, it is a problem. Um, yep. But that's fairly rare. And look, let's face it: something like you know, twenty to forty percent of the the adult population um, may well have used or experimented with cannabis in some way, shape, or form during their their lives.
0: Yeah, mm. absolutely. I um, yeah, I certainly know a few in that category. Um, but uh, just to, also just a question on that prescribing uh, piece we've been discussing: is it the case that and I. I tend to get this feedback from a lot of doctors that I speak to about this idea of so-called you know the the need for a patient to have tried a conventional treatment and and it either didn't work or they suffered a bad side effect from it take the i suppose broadly the opioid crisis that we've seen is it sufficient for a patient to just simply say i just i'm not interested in Getting onto even a codeine or a, a an endone or something strong of an opioid um, that that you know that really just that I'm worried about dependency issues. I'm worried about the the potential side effects that we read about with those classes of drugs. Is that something that would cut it? I, I'm just asking really broadly here.
2: Um, mm, that's a very good question. I sp- it, it probably the answer probably comes from a different direction. If somebody has pain that hasn't required them to use any prescription type medication, then I suppose the question does arise as to you know how severe is that that pain. And again, that's obviously subjective for the individual. Yeah. So, I mean, codeine was, until 2018, available over the counter. People could buy formulations that had small amounts in them. The, the issue with having tried other treatments is, as with a lot of bureaucratic requirements, is <laughs> subject to interpretation. And when I do talks for, for doctors, I'll say, there's no set number of treatments that have to have been tried and there's no set length of time that they need to have been tried for. And there's no set, set level of side effect that needs to be reached. So that I don't want to take it at all is probably not acceptable. That I took it a few times and it caused variably, um, caused me a headache, caused me constipation, caused me nausea. Um, you don't have to have done this 50 times to be able to say that this medication was disagree- disagreeable to me. Yeah. So if somebody, you know, and pain is the example says, look, I haven't used anything on prescription. Then I think that make, is going to make it harder for an application to get up. Because yeah. I think deemed that the problem is not at the sort of level where medicinal cannabis at this stage in the eyes of the authorities comes in. Now, strangely, you know, next year, well, I mean, this year, as you know, CBD has been down scheduled to schedule three. So by the time there are products available over the counter and there aren't any at the moment, and I I would not expect anything till at least the back half of 2022, then all of a sudden we've leapfrogged from, you have to have gone down this path of having tried a few things and Look, you could say that if people have had an anti-inflammatory and an ibuprofen probably qualifies as an anti-inflammatory and paracetamol, and maybe they've tried a couple of, you know, over-the-counter type painkillers, well, look, in the right circumstances, maybe like Voltaren or or Diclofenac, you know, maybe that's going to be just enough to, to fly, but... You know, I mean doctors, when they put in an application, are you know basically confirming that they're taking legal responsibility for that the information that has been presented is is correct and 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 uh, and true. But when it goes to s three, we're going to go from this very convoluted system to people just buying it at a chemist and bypassing, the ability for people just to go in and get a regular prescription without having to jump through all of these hoops. So yeah, um, yeah there are some, some improvements that could be made in the regime. I think it's fair to say. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I definitely, and we touched on um,
1: Parkinson's there for a second, but there's, there's a couple of other areas that uh, I did want to talk to you about as well. Um, given we haven't really talked about them on the podcast yet. Uh, one of them being um, in particular autism, uh, I know that we've we've had a few people reach out to us um, and express interest in um, wondering if it works for that particular indication. I'd love to get some of your uh, background or experience if you've been, you know prescribed much for that particular indication and and what your observations have been.
2: Yeah. Interestingly, fair bit of work out of Israel showing, you know, significant benefit in symptoms and behaviours in in autism. Now, autism spectrum disorder is, at the name spectrum says, very very broad, from the the mildest through to the to the most severe. And often, particularly in the in, in child and teenage years, they will go through a, sometimes a series of different pediatricians and psychiatrists, they will sometimes have a variety of diagnoses because there's no absolute diagnostic test for autism. Um, and I have seen not a not a massive number, but a reasonable number of, of those who are adults uh, with adult autism and also some teenagers who have been, you know, variably diagnosed with anxiety, depression, ADHD, autism, um, depression, you know, sometimes a host of different treatments and have been on a sometimes almost scary number of psychotropic medications because there is no specific medication for autism. You cannot treat autism as such. It's a, it's a way people are put together. You can treat some of the symptoms and that can include anxiety it include anger, it can include um, insomnia or problems with sleep. And if there's associated attention issues and they might be put on, uh, you know, dexamphetamine or some of the the ADHD medications. At a couple of of people in that um, cohort who, who really have done remarkably well on CBD and CBD would be and, and absolutely in, in anybody under 18 would be the absolute preferred and and arguably, you know, and could argue only formulation that should be used in, in adults, uh, probably a little bit more scope. Um, And in fact, under the age of 16, you can't prescribe THC in Australia without specialist input anyway. But CBD seems to have a very beneficial effect in in certain situations, um, in terms of anxiety behaviors, calmness, what gets reported back both by the individual and also by the parents where there's a good response is that the person is more calm. They're able to go about their daily life in a much better manner, they're often sleeping better, they're less anxious able to do what perhaps the rest of us might take for, for granted, um, you know, catch the bus to, to school, um, stick around with friends for a uh, longer period of time rather than have to pace up and down and around the room. So the impact, <clears throat> when it does work, and, you know, obviously, you know, for anybody listening to the, to the, the broadcast, you know, it's not, not saying, well, yes, this is the, the answer to everybody's, uh, you know, to everybody's prayers. But certainly, where it where it does work, the the impact can be um, you know quite significant. For others, there's improvement; they still got their problems. It's not taking away uh, the fact that there is autism spectrum, but the ability to improve uh, the mood, uh, to improve um, behaviours, to lessen anxiety, to um, you know sometimes perhaps increase and improve concentration and focus and, and generally just generally to improve the quality of life for both the individual and the, the parents, uh, you know, can be quite significant.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the key we hear a lot um, reported. It's, it's not a cure. It's not a, you know, a, a way to fix entirely anything, but the quality of life standard seems to, to be the the, the one thing that people report um, if they do report it working to be, to be it. Yeah, um, similarly, so-
0: Is it interactions as well? I think I've read about human interactions improving as a result of, I guess, that laundry list that you just went through, Um, Joe. But, yeah, is that something you'll get feedback from, I guess, people around?
2: Um, Yeah, look, better socialisation, which I suppose is a function of improvement in a lot of those symptoms
1: yeah attention and anxiety potentially yep. yeah for sure and, and and similarly another area we find that that has it's not the same but 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 the similar markers for improvement um i think ptsd is another one we hear about and and i'd also love to grab i'm just going to put you on the spot for I mean, we're not going to go through each indication individually <laughs> but um but maybe we'll cap it at this one on, on ptsd and get a few thoughts from your on that particular indication because we'd love love to explore that
2: yeah, PTSD, another uh, condition where there are no medications. People may be put on antidepressants if they have depression associated with PTSD. They might be put on anti-anxiety medications if they have anxiety associated with uh, sleep medications, if they have insomnia. But there is no specific treatment for PTSD pharmaceutically. Uh, generally, it's, it's more about, uh, you know, uh, psych- psychological remedies. Um, and, you know, so, and, and a lot of those people respond very, very well to that. But those who do quite some people do quite well again as before not not everybody important point to make always on medicinal cannabis in terms of i suppose in in a similar but different way to autism and also to to dementia without treating the underlying problem it does improve mood it does lessen anxiety it lessens the fear Mm -hmm. there is um, you know some theories that say the, um, the, the stress that people feel in, in post-traumatic stress disorder revolves around a disturbance in the endocannabinoid system and therefore by, and again, these are theories, um, and therefore yep. by putting in exogenous cannabis, you're correcting some of those imbalances. And the other, and I this is a little bit off topic, the, the other space that I think we'll be watching over the next few years in PTSD is psychedelics. Yeah. And um MDMA in particular seems to be able to rewire um, the brain that you don't forget the trauma, but you remember it without the emotion.
0: Mm. So,
2: yes, I remember that happened. But instead of reliving it with it, like it's raw and real and and all the fear and the emotion that comes with it, um, you seem to rem- just remember it. And um medicinal cannabis nobody knows the exact mechanism, but it does appear that for people where they get a good response, you get the same sort of impact that they don't forget the trauma, whether it was a motor vehicle accident, whether it was an assault, you know, whether they've been shot, whatever it might be, keeping in mind the original diagnosis of PTSD started with war veterans. So they're not forgetting it, but they're not impacted by it. It becomes in the past rather than being relived in the present. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that would, it would, Intuitively, makes some sense that it's a rebalancing of the the endocannabinoid system. We can't say that that is or isn't the case.
0: You know, one day we may be able to. Yeah, I'm we- curious on that point because with psychedelic medicine, I imagine. I mean, the TGA came out recently and said they weren't prepared to down schedule it um, for it to be prescribed. I think it's only still Schedule Nine and, and being put through yeah. clinical trials. I'm just curious on your perspective as someone who has, you know, worked as a doctor, um, you know, for many years, these particular substances that are the subject of discussions about psychedelic medicine. And I am referring to psilocybin and MDMA. How do you feel as a doctor, just about the fact that these are actually now being discussed as, as medicines and do you have any thoughts about psilocybin?
2: Yeah. Um, Look, it's it's interesting. The, the TGA hasn't downscheduled it. Equally, the federal government has allocated $15 million to research in this area. So it's one yeah. hand doesn't know what the other hand is is doing. The work that's coming out of Canada and North America again is very encouraging. And in terms of PTSD, it's um, you know MDMA assisted psychotherapy. So it's not just um, you know, take this these tablets and away you go. It's incorporated with. Um, psychotherapy. Yeah. Psilocybin in severe depression, um, there have been some trials. In fact, there was one uh, published a couple of months ago, which was very, very um, notable because it compared psilocybin to. Um, an SSRI medications. Um, Now, Prozac was the first of of those fluoxetine. There've been a dozen or more subsequently. And this trial actually compared psilocybin to an SSRI and actually found psilocybin to be superior in terms of uh, improvement in depressive symptoms. So it's an area that's fascinating. And it's what's what we're seeing now is a renaissance of, of interest in psychedelics, which is sort of running a few years behind medicinal cannabis. And, and both of them went out of favour. So in the 60s, there was research being done in psychedelics because I thought, well, this could, these could be medical treatments. And then, rightly or wrongly, it got picked up by the, the counterculture and then got sort of wrapped up into the war on drugs and everybody sort of forgot that the beginning of it was not um, a recreational substance at all. The beginnings of it was to be medication, but, you know, it, it all got sort of wrapped in, say, with the Nixon administration's war on drugs, and um, everybody then sort of, I suppose, forgot all about it um, or just didn't want to know about it. And, you know, now we're picking up the pieces with, with, with cannabis. Yeah, You know, 100 years ago, it was prescribed for uses pretty much like we're using today. And then it became a prohibited substance. And now we're saying, oh, this is all new. Well, you know, we're just picking up the pieces from from where we were previously.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think it's kind of funny that we, we're seeing the psychedelics and MDMA and the rest follow cannabis like that a few years behind it. It's almost like it's a, a gateway drug I'd oh, say, <laughs> well <paid> Very, <laughs> nice.
0: Very nice. Uh, dear. Oh dear, yeah, uh,
2: I, I, but I think I, there is. If you look at the North American experience and uh, in Canada in particular, and, and they've had a medicinal cannabis industry for what twenty years or so you can sort of see that where psychedelics are is probably where cannabis might've been 10 or 15 years ago. Sure. If people are interested. There's enough um, people at the forefront who are saying, we want to find out more. We don't want to charge out um, and, and make claims or, or you know, we don't want to just do things. It sounds silly to say, we don't want to say do things that are silly, but equally we don't want to ignore um, the potential for benefits. And certainly in refractory depression, where we know antidepressants don't cure it, they just control the symptoms and in PTSD where people may get no relief, then certainly um, substances which offer um, the potential for significant improvement. And again, it won't be for, for everybody. Um, you know, I think society is getting to a point where it's prepared to actually acknowledge that maybe we, we, we need to look at um, that which was you know, cast aside and say, well, we need to revisit this.
0: Well, it's, it's, um, it's interesting how even the ABC, I was listening to a podcast a couple of months ago about a guy who, I don't want to say went undercover, but he basically went to a, a spiritual retreat where everyone was taking ayahuasca and they had a shaman and people would take it under a kind of in a controlled environment. It was supervised. I wouldn't say akin necessarily to um, the practices and procedures of the um, assisted psychotherapy clinical trials that we've just been speaking about but, um I was, I was just curious uh, do you think maybe one day that one might also be in uh, in the frame for discussion
2: look uh, it's a good question andrew i didn't hear that podcast but i've heard of those sorts of experiences which i think generally people undertake more for um sort of for personal rather than medical um reasons so i think people who generally go down that path do it more like you say for spiritual awakening or or opening up again yeah precisely opinions on on that and i'm not expressing one but i don't think at the moment there's anything on the horizon that says it would be seen as a medical treatment
0: but you know we're talking
2: here in five
0: years time
2: yeah, who knows
0: well you guys just yeah, and i think i saw in march this year uh wa elected two senators and i, I gotta say the state where you live i'll never I quite understand the politics uh, there's not a lot of love for labor at the federal elections but then there's a lot of love for them at um the state elections and then uh we get two senators being elected from legalized cannabis wa um, do you have any thoughts about that? Do you feel like um, WA with, with all the work that um, is going on in the industry over there, I know Little Green Farmer has sort of been the pioneer, but um, there's a few other operations coming up as well. Do you feel like your state could be the, um, the first to, uh, to, to go recreational?
2: Um, yeah, look, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, look, I I really, I can't really express an opinion on that. And look, the two people who got elected in particular, Brian Walker, who is also a GP by, uh, by profession, I think in the upper house, uh, brought out the fact that in 2003, the then Labor government had actually moved to decriminalize personal possession of um, I think it was similar of the aCT I think two plants are up to a certain number of grams of, of cannabis and I think he asked in the upper house well was this as this this still labor policy or has this been removed from the statutes and I think he was greeted with um, pretty much stunned silence the um, premier is on the record as um, not being supportive and given that he pretty much rules the roost um and has control of both houses i wouldn't be predicting any change anytime soon but you know stranger things have also um also happened interesting
1: i think at the the end of um the day I, I, at least when i think about it it's mostly about um harm reduction and i know you you're keenly interested in that space as well joe and i'd maybe love to hear a little bit about um for example, tobacco harm reduction, which is something we haven't actually uh, touched on in this podcast series yet. Um, Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah, look, ultimately, I think Jimmy Carter is probably not going to go down in history as one of the greatest American presidents, but (laughs) he did say something that I think was very worthwhile about the policies on drugs, and he said our policies on drugs, as a very minimum, should do no more harm to the individual than the substances themselves. And I'm not sure I've got that absolutely word for word. And when we put people in jail for um, you know, possession of, of small amounts of, of drugs, you know, I think we are doing them more harm than the substances themselves, especially when we're talking about uh, you know, cannabis in, in, in particular. Um, so yeah, look, with tobacco harm reduction, we know from international jurisdictions, and I should point out that I'm the chairman of Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association, and we are supportive of and provide education on you know, ways for people to stop smoking. It's been known for nearly 60 years now that smoking causes lung cancer, causes causes a whole host of other medical problems, and yet people still continue to to smoke. And we also know that there are a number of ways for people to stop smoking, and that includes throwing away the cigarette packet. It includes patches, gums, sprays, medications. There's no shortage of them. And despite all of these, people still continue to smoke. And we know that in Australia in the 1980s, we were at the forefront of reducing cigarette smoking and that was really good. But now in the the 2010s, we are really the laggard. And the reason we're the laggard is that countries such as the UK, the USA, the EU, Japan, Scandinavia, Canada, they all um, support the use of vaping uh, liquid, liquid nicotine as tobacco harm reduction. It is not for children, it is not for people who don't smoke to take up, but it is at least 95% less harmful than smoking. Um, in New Zealand, they have a proposal to be smoke-free by 2025. I think that's really fairly optimistic. It's only four and a bit, you know, it's only four years away. But if you go to the New Zealand Ministry of Health site, you will see that they support vaping and they show you that it is an alternative to smoking. People smoke because they want the nicotine Mm. They don't want all these other chemicals, but smoking means they get the nicotine with all these other chemicals. Um, if you can offer people nicotine, as we do in patches and sprays and gums, and you, you don't even need a prescription. You buy them at the, at the chemist, you buy them at the supermarket, and that's all fine. But as soon as you put it into a liquid form, you get the public health lobby who say, oh, no, this is all terrible. We can't do this. And unfortunately, for better or worse, the um, health minister is a bit of a captive of the, uh, the health department and the, the public health lobby. So if you look at the New Zealand approach and you look at our approach, which is this horrendous um, prescription-based model, it's just not going to work. What we want is for it to be no harder for people to obtain an at least 95% less harmful option. So if you can go Mm. to the supermarket, if you can go to the petrol station, if you can go to the deli and you can buy cigarettes and you can do that. It's absolutely you can do it if you're over the age of 18 then you should be able to buy a less harmful alternative. In New Zealand and in the UK, you can do it. In the UK, they run campaigns. They run public health campaigns, encouraging people to switch to, um, to vaping. So, you know, in this country, unfortunately, um, we are an outlier. We really are an outlier. Um, in the entire OECD, it's only Australia and Turkey that do not have um, uh, vaping of liquid, uh, nicotine as a
0: consumer product. It's it's absolutely fascinating to me hearing all that because I just I, I do think about how advertising campaigns such as the one you've described in New Zealand is is really money well spent if you think about the reduction of uh, smokers taking in carcinogenic chemicals um, and the the decreased burden possibly on on oncology departments um, mm. but it's also fascinating to hear insights and to think that Australia in the course of say ten years has dropped behind because i do recall um, that about 10 years ago when the debate was happening around plain packaging um that that uh, australia was at the forefront then um at least with respect to that proposal and it seems like we did that and 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 i've observed cigarette prices have gone up significantly over that time but yeah do you have any thoughts on those measures versus vaping i imagine you'd probably say vaping is more effective
2: well, I think the history shows that plain packaging made people feel like they were doing something. So it gives a warm in a glow to the politicians and the public health lobby because it's all... To them, it's not about helping smokers. It's about fighting big tobacco. Now, yeah. sure, the tobacco companies want their, their labels and they want their brands. Sure, they do. So... But, but these sort of moves like plain packaging, if people want to smoke, they'll smoke. And yeah. the Australia has the highest the highest per stick price of cigarettes in the world. Mm. And yet in the US where prices are about a, nearly a third of what they are in Australia, in the UK where they're a half, they now have lower rates of smoking because people are switching to, to vaping. So you can keep jacking the price up. And every time that happens, there will be some people who may stop. But the higher you jack it up, the more people either A, miss out on other on buying other um. Uh, you know, other other items that they might need. And that might include food for their children. um, You know, that might include clothes. And the other one that happens is they go to the black market and the amount of black market tobacco now coming into Australia is enormous. Hmm. So you really, and if it's got a plain package, well, look fine. I don't have any problems either or, but I don't think when you look at the actual rates of smoking, it can be said in any way, that has been successful in reducing the smoking rates. It hasn't. I'm and it's, sure mm. it's a you know clip around the ears to big tobacco, hooray, we can all feel warm and fuzzy and like we've achieved something. But if our aim is to actually help smokers quit, if that's our aim, then it's been a failure. So yeah. you would probably be against the, the laws that are, well, coming in very soon around
1: nicotine vaporizers. In, is it October or November? Yeah.
2: So, the current, the current situation is that you, you do need a prescription to import uh, nicotine liquid from, uh, from overseas. And there's estimated to be between three and 500,000 vapours in Australia. And I'd say that probably 98 or 99% of those are currently in breach of the laws. So, the, the new laws coming in on October 1 are actually a tightening up. So, what will be interesting is to see whether those laws are then enforced, because they certainly haven't been so far. Um, there will be capacity for the first time for nicotine liquid to be purchased in Australia on prescription, but we're going to need, or people are going to need a SAS B, a bit like the medicinal cannabis um, prescription. And it's like with medicinal cannabis, most doctors probably won't be happy to go down that path either because they won't understand it. And I get that. I make no criticism of the doctors because it is complicated, and um, you know, notwithstanding the government's introducing this, they're really not running adequate education to either tell vapors or doctors that this is coming and what they need to do. So um, the view of ATRA is that this is going to cause a lot of problems and the worst thing, the worst thing that is likely to happen is that people will actually go back to smoking. So not only, not yeah. only won't it help reduce smoking rates, is every likelihood that it will increase smoking rates
1: yeah Uh, uh, you're (laughs) i can't imagine becoming an ap for a a nicotine vape uh would be a hard sell i imagine
2: well look I, i think rightly or wrongly doctors by their nature do tend to be a little bit conservative they're worried about new things they're worried about getting sued they're worried about medicare jumping on their backs they're worried about um um, a medical board jumping on their back so something of this nature which is sort of new it doesn't have generally doesn't have the support of most medical bodies they're just going to feel like that don't, honestly don't they just don't want to feel like they're going to stick their neck out notwithstanding they don't mm-hmm. want to help their patients there's only so far a lot of people feel that they're prepared to, to stick mm-hmm. their neck out and and that's a real um, problem atra is is looking to do what it can to, to try and provide some education but you know like seriously (laughs) we run on the smell of an oily rag we don't get millions of dollars of government funding like the opponents of vaping um you know they all sip latte in their you know university rooms and um you know just coast around on on government funding Uh, we don't get any of that
0: well speaking of government funding i was just thinking as you were talking about the advertising campaign that would be um, running in new zealand and and could be running in in australia i think Australia spent, so when we introduced plain packaging, uh, Philip Morris took Australia to court um, under investor state dispute resolution uh, provisions in our free trade agreement with Hong Kong, uh, citing that the Australian government infringed on its IP. I think we spent about $24 million, or Australian taxpayers did, uh, funding that legal case, which Australia did win, admittedly, in, in 2015. But... We had that sort of money lying around. I feel like we could put together a a handy little vaping. (laughs) It's it's really.
2: um, I remember, I think the then health minister, and I I could stand corrected on this, but I think the then health minister was uh, Tanya Plibersek. And I do remember reading a transcript where she was asked about treasury estimates on sort of forward revenues for cigarette um, excise money. <clears throat> and we was more or less asked, well, is there any such prediction that over the forward estimates there'll be a reduction in tobacco excise based on plain packaging? And the answer to that was no. Mm. That's that it up, I think.
0: It really does. I just curious, I suppose the um, tobacco harm reduction work that you're doing um, sort of ties in generally with uh, you know with the work. I think you have held senior positions at the AMA, um, and you know, we talked before recording about how you're a bit of a radical doctor, Joe. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what, what's some of the <laughs> practical slash radical advice that you give to your patients generally? Do you have a you, you stickler for sort of giving people a set amount of time that they should be uh, exercising per week or?
2: Yeah, um, look, you're right, Adam. This is literally, literally in the last century. I helped some positions in the AMA. It was in the 90s. Look, it was was interesting. You you do what you can. I I suppose I formed a view that there's probably better ways to advance some causes and subsequent to that, I got involved in... um, I'm still involved to some degree in the, the management of, of medical centres and the corporatization of, of general practice, which has led to, I think, um, better delivery of, of services, not you know, because of me personally, but but the whole industry. Um, and look, about a decade ago, I wrote a book uh, called Do-It-Yourself Health, which is all about exercise, sleep, stress management, relaxation, relationships, diet, exercise, um, really saying, you know, Looking after your own health is is key, and if you put the right sorts of like car, if you put the right fuels into it, you keep the radiator topped up, if you keep the tyres pumped where they're supposed to be, the car will probably run better. And it's the same with the human body, and we know. That in Western society, something like 75 to 80 percent of the disease burden are what are called chronic lifestyle related conditions. There, and, and obviously, you know, COVID sort of reminded people about viruses, but you know, again, if you look at the, the death toll from COVID on a global scale in terms of the deaths from cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it remains quite small. You wouldn't think that if you listen just to the media, but if you actually look at the numbers, um, very much the case. And a lot of these conditions are um, not totally preventable, but your chances can be reduced significantly. If you don't smoke, you're much less likely to get lung cancer or heart disease. It can happen, it's less likely to. If you're eating, um, you know, proper good food, sensible food, a Mediterranean type diet, vegetables, good quality protein, um, you know, rather than lots of processed, uh, you know, processed grains and lots of sugary foods, you're less likely to get to, you know, type two diabetes. If you don't drink too much, you're less likely to get liver problems. Yes, you can have a drink. I I like a glass of wine myself. I won't pretend otherwise. Um, If you do some regular exercise, it's good for your bones, it's good for your heart, it's good for your lungs, it's good for your mental health. So there's so much that people can do on a day-to-day basis to manage and maintain their own health. A bit like maintaining your own car. If you wait for it to break down and go to the mechanic, they like might be able to fix it up for you, but it's probably going to be a lot more expensive, and you're going to think, "Well, could this have been prevented?" And with the human body, there is a lot um, where you can reduce the likelihoods, and, and rather than then have to go to the doctor after your body sort of breaking down, maybe try and keep it in better nick as you go.
0: Uh, an analogy. <laughs> yeah, it is actually, and um, I suppose, yeah, it really does tie into I suppose the theme of our whole podcast is just around alternative medicine, and even just hearing you. Speak, uh, you know, it really does expand that beyond, um, you know, the topic of medicinal cannabis, which we are often going on about. It's, you know, it's incorporating, if you're being prescribed that product, incorporating that into, you know, good sleeping habits, good diet habits, um, exercise. Um, but yeah, uh, p- apparently you saying these things um, renders you a radical. So um, <laughs> it's been a pleasure having such a radical doctor on the podcast. Well,
2: look, you know what can one say? But that's probably, <laughs> um, look, I, I think the, the, the idea of sort of Westman and alternative medicine, these are all jargon terms. Really what we should be about is, is helping people to be as healthy as they can be. Now that may at times mean that people need pharmaceutical medications and, and some of them can be literally life saving. but we don't and shouldn't, in my opinion, be reliant on pharmaceutical medications when there are um, you know, other steps and actions that we can do and take as individuals um, in terms of, yeah, diet, exercise, sleep, and uh, you know, stress management, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, it,
1: it seems um, un, un, unfortunate that uh, diet and exercise would be viewed as an alternative medicine to some, uh, but I for sure know that it is in some particular cases, <laughs> um, and sleep for that matter. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, this has been an incredibly informative uh, podcast. I, I dare say our viewers will get a lot out of this. And um,
0: I'm just th- – there's any last questions, Andrew, before I think we're – No, I mean, about- we didn't really get to, to pick your brain about Little Green Farmer, but maybe um, if you can just give us a, a quick uh, around the grounds about what you did there because I, I I've been so excited watching LGP from from the early days. They really were one of the, um, the first companies in the space.
2: Mm. So Little Green Farmer was the first company to produce medicinal cannabis in Australia. So to, to grow, harvest, uh, manufacture, bottle, distribute, and have prescribed and dispensed. And um, that was a massive achievement by the team. And then went and went to a listing on the ASX in, in 2020. Um, and, and through that, an expansion of the, um, the, the Grow facility, started as a very small facility, obviously the top secret location, um, nobody's allowed to know where it is. Um, and then earlier this year, and then last year through COVID expand, the, uh, the ability to, to produce has been enormous and a credit to the, the team there. And uh, look, earlier this year, um, you know, capital raise and, and expansion, and, and, the, and the commitment of the team has always been to getting the, the best quality, consistent medicinal cannabis product, um, and be vertically integrated for you know for patients to benefit by, and uh, that's Australian patients where we have a you know significant, I believe, portion of the market. I can't give any figures, but also you know to the export market and uh, and Australia because this is this is a plus for some regulations because of the quarantine and agricultural regulations Australian products are um, free of any impurities and um, some countries overseas the products aren't always free of heavy metals or pesticides or fungicides and they're not tested for such so yeah the LGP team are a great group of people yes I'm biased because obviously I work with them but even if I didn't um, Mm -hmm. they really are a great group of people and have been able to kick goals and um, through a very, very difficult time last year, very difficult time for everybody last year, you know, come through and, uh, you know, continues to deliver for, uh, you know, for Australian patients.
0: That's excellent. Fantastic. We'll continue watching uh, the LGP journey, but yeah, it's been amazing so far and it's been great having you on the podcast. So, you know, we might well do this again, I, we'll, whether you're ready for another hour of being peppered <laughs> with lots of questions by Mitch and I, but it's probably just a testament to, um, you know, how informative uh, your answers are. So we really appreciate your time. I see it. Oh, it's, uh, it's been
2: a pleasure to be with you both. And um, yeah, happy to come back on if you'll have me at some point.
1: We, we might have you back for the uh, the MDMA version in a few years, <laughs> uh, that could be, could be the next day. It, it is ultimate after all, so that we, we are going to be looking at that very um, much under the microscope as, as it opens up. So definitely. Yeah.
0: Excellent. All right, well, Dr. Joe, thank you so much for your time. We'll um, look forward to doing this again soon. Thanks. All right. Take care.